Welcome to the Heart Soul Wisdom Podcast, a journey of self-discovery and transformation. Moira Sutton and her amazing guests share real-life stories, tools, and strategies to inspire and empower you to create and live your best life. Come along on the journey and finally blast through any fears, obstacles, and challenges that have held you back in the past so you can live your life with the joy, passion, and happiness that you desire. Now, here's your host, Create the Life You Love Empowerment Life Coach, Moira Sutton. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 64, Changing Your Psychological Love Life with our special guest, Dr. Thomas Jordan. Dr. Jordan is a practicing psychologist and psychoanalyst in New York City for over 30 years. His work is focused on helping people learn a clinically proven way of dramatically changing their love lives. In addition to a psychotherapy practice, he has been researching the unhealthy love life, and people who experience repetitive love life difficulties. His mission is to help individuals become conscious of what they have learned about love relationships that is interfering with their ability to form and or sustain a healthy love relationship and to learn how they can change what is unhealthy. Thomas is the author of Learn to Love, Guide to Healing Your Disappointing Love Life. So without further ado, I would like to welcome a warm welcome to Dr. Thomas Jordan. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you, Maura, for inviting me. Thank you. Uh, I think your message is very important. And um, I know in my community here, the listeners, um, more women than men, but they're both there. And um, this is a topic I think that's going to help a lot of people. So thank you for that. Thomas, starts, what, what inspired you to write Learn to Love, Guide to Healing, Your Disappointing Love Life? Ah. Uh. Two reasons, two okay. reasons, one very personal and the other professional. Um, I made changes in my love life uh, back in my 30s as a consequence of some uh, personal work, some therapy work that I was doing on my own life. And uh, I made some changes and I realized that there was some issues that I became aware of in the course of making those changes that I could put into a book where people could read them, begin thinking about them, and and use them to make similar changes. The idea was that you didn't have to be in therapy for five years, 10 years, whatever, to actually make some very important and permanent improvements in your love life. So I went through that process myself. Um, um, Basically, what I learned is that I had learned a few things in my family of origin that uh, did not work in my love life. And as a consequence of that learning, which was unconscious to me, I wasn't aware, I didn't know what I had learned or that I even learned it. Um, I uh, was replicating disappointment one after another in my love life between the ages of 17 and 35. And when I was able to take a look at that, I realized that uh, I could unlearn uh, what I had learned, the unhealthy parts of it, and uh, and do something healthier, something better. And when I did that, uh, not too long afterwards, I met my wife, and uh, we've been married for 28 years. Um, so 
I, I, I felt like there's something here that I have to put into a book that people can read and begin the process of working on their love lives, you know, looking inside to make changes. Um, I also, as a consequence of being a clinical psychologist here in New York City over the past 30 years, I, I've been always interested in like, collecting data, so to speak, uh, from my clinical practice about uh, what was going on in people's love lives. And I was, I was really seeing a lot of repetition and a lot of replication of unhealthy relationship experiences that people had. And again, you know, the difficult part is that none of that is conscious. Uh, so a person can replicate over and over again unhealthy love relationships and not really be aware of why or how they're doing so. Uh, I was seeing quite a bit of that. So I, I wanted to get the message out in any way I could, and writing a book is one form of doing that. Mm -hmm. You covered a lot there, and we're going to be going into a lot of that. One of the first things you said there that I really liked was permanent. When you change a belief or um, a habit or an attitude, really uh -huh. a belief Absolutely. at an unconscious Absolutely. level, that permanency with that. Uh -huh. Permanent, right. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, in my book, I talk about the psychological love life. And, mm -hmm. and, and that is the, I'd like to introduce people to the idea that changing their love life permanently is to go inside to look at what the psychology of their own love life consists of, because that's what they bring into love relationships. And if they've been taught that love relationships are unhealthy, in a certain way, that's what they will blindly replicate over and over again. I'll give you a, a powerful example. Uh, a while ago, I saw a woman, a 50-year-old woman, uh, who was complaining about her love relationship and was feeling depressed. And during an initial in <laughs> interview with her, uh, we, you know, I was trying to understand her her history a bit, and she was telling me that. She grew up in a home with an alcoholic, violent father, and she and her siblings witnessed physical abuse um, between father and mother. Father was an alcoholic, violent man. And then when we got to her current love life, she told me that she married and divorced two alcoholic, violent men, mm -hmm. and that her boyfriend was currently being emotionally abusive with Threaten, threatening her with physical abuse as well. And I remember at that point, I asked her uh, very innocently and kind of naively, you know, just a course of an interview, uh, do you think there's a relationship between growing up in the family you grew up with in and what has gone on in your love life? And this is an educated um, woman with, uh, I think, insightful understandings she looked at me with a blank stare like what and i never forget that i never forget that look there was no link between what had happened in her past that had taught her that an eligible man is alcoholic and violent and she was replicating that learning without awareness already twice perhaps three times to come. So um, examples like that really made me aware of the fact that this learning, when it occurs unconsciously, it sits in the psychology of our love lives, and it replicates. Uh, 
And that's what learning does when it's not conscious. So the key is to become conscious of what we've learned and then enter a process of unlearning. So is that the key to disrupting the behavior and the belief and the feelings they have? Yes. So- when, when you look at the learning more specifically, um, you it's, it consists of beliefs, mm-hmm. behaviors, and the feelings that become familiar. Uh, by the way, familiar is an interesting word. The root of the word is family. Familiar. I love I love that. I read that and I wrote that down. I love I love tidbits with words in them. It's like when somebody said that they're, you know, no, nowhere. I said, no, you're now here. So yeah, I, right. I love I love play on words. So that right. one I, I exactly. Yes. Uh-huh. Do you know that the word alone was all one? At one time, I do know that an yeah. L fell out alone, which is interesting. It's a very different idea, right? Alone <clears throat> versus all one. <laughs> yes, yes. There's a whole there's a whole bunch of them. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, I know. But, you know, what are the statistics of divorce rates? Are they are they raising? Are they declining? Did, were they affected during you know COVID, which we still have out there? But uh, did uh, did yeah. you see differences in your your clinical research and your practice with yes. what, what was happening? Yeah. Yeah, a while back, it was hovering around 50%, 40 to 50%. Mm -hmm. And when you added everything up, it came out to around 50%. And that was a standard number. Uh, Recently, it's been going down, but not for a good reason. It's been going down because people are not marrying as frequently as they were. And I think that that's a problem. Uh, The other the other part of it is that what, what was alarming to me is that second and third marriages are predictably much worse. For example, second marriages bring a divorce rate of 60% and uh, third marriage is up around 70 something. So these numbers tell me, as well as the avoidance of marriage, they confirm for me that people are making the same mistakes over and over again and and reaching a point of resignation. And that I I talk about resignation in the book and I I have a a PowerPoint presentation I put together and I talk about it there as well, trying to use imagery to help people learn some of these messages. And it can be a powerful addition to, you know, text or language. So what happens is that and I call it the disappointing love life. The disappointing love life is a condition, you know, it's a condition where your love life is dominated by these unconscious learning patterns that if they're healthy, fine, it's not disappointing. Chances are you'll have a healthy love life because you'll tend to replicate the positive experiences. But if they're unhealthy, then a di- disappointing love life is 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 likely, and uh, the characteristics of, that I looked that I found in a disappointing love life, researching that phenomena over the years, is that it's repetitive. Um, <clears throat> the disappointment occurs over and over again, and people aren't aware that that's happening necessarily. Um, so it it's sort of occurring, and it, it repeats. Um, all the way to resignation. For some people, resignation can occur after one disappointment. Some people stop really looking for love after several disappointments. But when you enter that stage of resignation, it's really a tragic thing because people really lose hope that they can find love in their lives. I have a blog 
Moira, a blog called the Love Life Learning Center.com. I put it up in 2012, and I wanted it to be like a library of Love Life articles online. I have over 300 articles on that blog. Um, and you know, where people get some accurate um, viewpoints on issues, you know, uh, from the clinical work I've been doing, just from the research I've been doing, so they can get some advice, <laughs> some some information about what to do in love life circumstances. And I wrote an article a few years ago called Living Without Love in Your Life. And boy, oh boy, what an avalanche of commentary I got on that article. And, you know, it, it, I mean, some articles get, you know, the readership is kind of low, some moderate, but some, the tsunami comes. And that one was a tsunami, so much so, because I, I answer commentary when they come to my blog. I personally answer them. I I interact sometimes with people via the messaging system there. And I learned a few things. I even rewrote the article twice because of some of the information that people gave me because they were sharing some painful experiences of why they stopped looking for love and why it was difficult. And oftentimes people are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s when they reach that point of resignation. So that's a very a very powerful um, you know, end state of the uh, of the uh, dis- disappointing love life that I think is a, a big problem that needs a solution. And part of the solution was understanding that in addition to this repetition that takes place in a disappointing love life, if you look into it a little more deeply, you see that certain experiences are being replicated. And that's important because that kind of adds some flesh and bones to it, it really gives it a little bit of a, a clarity that there are certain experiences. I I listed 10 of them in the book. I've added a couple since then. It, it's an evolving list of experiences that tend to get into our love lives and teach us things about love relationships that are unhealthy, and then they become uh, uh, experiences that sit in our psychological love life. Uh, that provide sort of a template or a blueprint for the types of unhealthy love relationship experiences that get replicated over and over again. And as you mentioned, belief, behavior, and feeling, I looked into it yet in another level of how we unconsciously recreate these experiences. And that brought me to that formula, belief, uh, behavior, and feeling. For example, um, if you've been Uh, abandoned, which is an unfortunate experience that can occur in childhood, for example, abandoned by a parent. And that experience of abandonment has gotten into your love life such that in the deepest recesses of your belief system, you kind of think, all right, you know, all men will abandon, all women abandon. And I've heard this stated outright when I go looking for it in the you know, in, in in conversation with people that have reached a point of resignation, they'll say to me, you know, well, look, uh, I, people are divorcing all over the place. It just doesn't last. You know, people leave relationships. And I can tell the abandonment experience is at work, uh, influencing what people are believing. And then, of course, there's the behavior that oftentimes people who've been abandoned by a relationship early in life, uh, we'll find unavailable partners, emotionally unavailable partners, over and over and over again. And in, 
it became apparent to me that somehow there's like this signaling system or something. I mean, how, why do people end up with, with that experience, end up with the same kind of individual over and over again, who is incapable of having the kind of love relationship that sustains over time that involves a commitment. So there's certain behaviors. Uh, for example, you can find people who abandon, and oftentimes that's the case, or you can abandon yourself or do both. And I've met individuals that have done both. In certain relationships, they abandon the relationship. And then in other relationships, they find people who do the abandoning. And then, of course, there's the feeling. For abandonment, the feeling is loss. So what, en what ends up happening is that this person generating loss over and over again in their love life, and it becomes a familiar feeling, a familiar in the sense that it replicates the feeling of loss that obviously accompanied the experience of abandonment early in life. So that feeling is being replicated over and over again. So the learning is, what I'm talking about here is the learning is involved on a belief, behavior, and feeling level. And you can see how that pattern without consciousness will dominate a person's love life, possibly all the way to the point of resignation. There was a lot of information in there, <laughs> Thomas. Oh. <laughs> um, so I'm going to see where I'm going to take that um, because there's a few areas I want to go. One is, uh, as you said, abandonment is loss. So let's talk about loss and grief and how, how do you help somebody break that cycle, which is tied into their belief, their behavior, and the feeling they get? How, yes. how do you work with that? I work, I work with core beliefs at a subconscious level. That's my work. But how do you do that? Yeah. Uh, in the book, I talk about what I call the unlearning method, mm -hmm. uh, because I believe learning, unconscious learning is such an important part of these phenomena as we're talking about. Um, I believe that there's a three-step process, generally speaking. Step one is to become conscious of what we've learned. And basically, we do that by looking into people's love lives or encouraging them to look into their own love lives and find patterns of repetition. And repetition is usually the clue that something has been learned unconsciously and it's basically repeating itself over and over again. So once you take a look and, and the, the list of relationship, unhealthy relationship experiences that I put together kind of helps as, a, as a, a general guide to stop the process. And then from there, people begin to look at replication, which deepens it a little bit more. I mean, if you see abandonment, for example, or abuse, neglect, these unhealthy relationship experiences showing up from time to time in your relationships, or every time you have a love relationship, um, then you know a pattern of repetition and replication is taking place. So um, <clears throat> I encourage people when they reach the point of understanding this is happening and they've identified it, it's occurring. <clears throat> I encourage people to move to step two, which is to challenge the fact that this pattern is dominating their love lives. And I find that uh, I've chosen the word challenge because I believe we human beings have the ability to challenge habits, to challenge learned experience, especially if we have consciousness on our sides. Consciousness is one of the wonderful assets in human life because we can identify problems, 
um, in this case, psychological problems, uh, issues where we've learned something unhealthy and we become aware that there's a healthier way that what we've learned is unhealthy, we can begin challenging, disrupting that automatic pattern. And unconscious learning and the phenomena that it creates um, once you start disrupting it, once you start challenging it, and in my work, it consists of empowering people to understand that they can enter that process of unlearning. They can start to challenge and, and sort of study what's going on in my love life. What am I doing over and over again? What do I believe? How is it related to what's happened earlier in life? Once these questions begin to flow and people start answering them, some strengthening process is taking place inside where they can disrupt the habit. Um, uh, for example, um, sometimes I, I work with someone who becomes interested in, in starting up his or her love life again, for example. And what is it I have to look out for? Okay, um, we have to avoid controlling men. My father was controlling and possessive, and I'm, I'm trying to not find that kind of man in my love life. So the person becomes aware that this is a possibility, and let me try to develop a filter for this kind of thing so I can identify this kind of individual early while I'm dating and so on. And, and so you see a process of successful filtering form. You see, uh, you go through a process with them where people talk about uh, how they're doing, they examine, or they journal. If they're doing it alone, they can journal these experiences and become aware of their own progress, filtering out people who are not ready for a relationship that possess some of these features that they know they cannot have in their love life that leads to an unhealthy love relationship. So that that challenging ability is strengthened as the person studies their own love life and becomes committed to working on their love life to improve it. Step three is to begin a process of what I call correction. It's the correction of, of, of what's happened, what they've learned. And I, I like the word correction. And I also like the word opposite because opposite means, for example, in this process that, for example, with abandonment, um, if you've had abandonment in your love life experience, to find someone who can make a commitment, to look for responsibility to look for commitment as people tell the stories of their lives at the beginning of a dating experience, for example. Um, this is something that I think uh, permits a person to begin steering their love life experience in a healthier direction to correct what's been learned uh, that was unhealthy. So once the person gets to that level, I think there's a really good chance of finding healthier partners and becoming consciously aware of their love lives in a way that has not existed prior. Thank you. Regards to, uh, do you get more couples that come to you or individuals? And my question is, let's say one person really wants to work on their relationship, they're committed, and they want to, you know, get back to that love that they had when they met, which would be different in each stage of our life. But the other one doesn't want to work on the relationship. Uh, how, how do you help someone in that case? Yeah, I, I used to do a lot of marital therapy at one time. Uh, my wife does. My wife and I, my wife's a clinical social worker and an analyst. She does the family and couples these days. I, hmm. I've i moved more towards individuals, but um, I, um, 
I see a lot of people who are in relationships and they talk about what you just mentioned, where they're because they're in therapy, going through the process of change, and the partner is resistant to couples therapy and resistant to change. This is a big problem. Um, and I'm I, I try to be fair-minded about it and 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 think, okay, let's 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 go through the steps. Um, as one person changes in a relationship, I believe it creates change in the relationship. Now, mm-hmm. the change might be difficult. For example, if one partner realizes uh, my relationship is unhealthy and it needs to change, I've studied it, I've talked about it, I'm, I'm getting a sense of what the changes need to be, and now I'm entering arguments with my uh, my significant other because some of the things he or she does are unhealthy, and I know it now, and I'm focused on it now. So you might witness in such a situation an increase in conflict, but it's not, in my opinion, a bad conflict. It's conflict that occurs when a couple begins to look at patterns that may have been in control of their relationship that now one person in the relationship is realizing they can no longer tolerate. And that's... That could be the beginning of something. Now, you don't know what happens next until it happens. I mean, in some instances, the the person uh, who is resistant uh, becomes interested because the person who's in therapy starts separating, starts distancing, starts feeling okay, nothing better is going to happen here, and I need something better. I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. This is replicating something in my history or in his history that I'm not going to permit. So as they begin to separate, I've seen instances where the the partner says, "Uh, I don't want to lose you. I realize how important you are. Let's, you mentioned couples work. Let's try it. And I've seen that happen. Of course, I've also witnessed situations where the person who's in therapy begins to separate it creates conflict, and then the relationship breaks up. And uh, the person that's in therapy uh, takes a break from relationships for a while and then starts to formulate an understanding of what do I need to learn from this relationship or marriage that I can improve upon in the next relationship. And and that's that's a good thing. Um little bit tragic that the partner that's that's resistant to change probably doesn't make a change and if they find another relationship they will repeat the pattern Mm -hmm. i find Mm -hmm. that's not good but these these are the kind of situations that i've witnessed Mm -hmm. Um, just to share with you thomas i'm coming up to my 31st 31 uh, wedding anniversary with my soulmate cliff uh-huh. Uh, we've been together for 33 years. One thing my sister-in-law said to me when we met, she talked about listening with, through communication, um, that you two will always be together because you talk even when it's difficult. Uh-huh. And, and we still do that even if it's mm-hmm. difficult. because uh-huh. <laughs> instead of Especially it, when it's difficult. <laughs> especially when it's difficult. <laughs> yes. And, and just the listening and, you know, no blaming, no all that kind of stuff. But how how 
do you help couples, you know, develop a way to master their art of listening, which might foster curiosity and more understanding for their partner? Do you uh-huh. have te- techniques there? Yeah, uh, I happen to think that couples work is um, it always starts with repairing communication. Mm-hmm. Um, communication breaks down when couples are at odds or unable to solve problems together. Um, so communication is where it begins. And communication is a big umbrella term. Listening is essential to communication. Um, taking risks to talk about one's vulnerable feelings is the equally important skill. So you have listening and vulnerable communication, talking. Vulnerable, and I like the word vulnerable because the best talking that you can do in a couple's relationship is when you're feeling vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It's not something that's going to be done cool as a cucumber. It's going to be done with feelings of uh, discomfort, uh, unsure how the person you're talking to is going to hear what you're saying. So uh, being able to take a risk to speak one's feelings when you're feeling vulnerable, especially hurt feelings, which I think are most important to talk about and oftentimes ignored. I mean, hurt feelings are the feelings that need to be resolved, and they can only be resolved if shared. And that's difficult for all of us. Human beings when they feel vulnerable, have difficulty talking about hurt. Listening to your partner's hurt feelings and not getting defensive is a very important um, part of the listening experience, in my opinion. Defenses occur when we feel like we need to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's another... um, difficulty we human beings can face. Uh, We all try to protect ourselves from hurt. Uh, Thomas, we were talking about if two couples, or it's not by two people, a couple, you know, that one wants to work in the relationship, the other one does not. What what do you see in the examples there? And also with your wife, who you work with, Victoria, you know, what, what are the common things you see there? And do you see that if one person does the work, the other one comes along and gets more interested and sees that, you know, they uh, yeah. want to work on the relationship. Sometimes, uh, sometimes. I, uh, what, what sometimes happens is one person takes the lead, uh, becomes aware of a, rela- a relationship issue that's troubling the relationship that needs to be worked on, that's not being worked on because only one person is aware of what's going on. Even though I have to say that, you know, when one person, say one person's in therapy, the other is not, and the person that's in therapy begins to make changes in his or her um, uh, understanding of what's healthy in a relationship and what is not, often, often, reserved often, that, you know, that'll that'll promote um, communication, that didn't happen before. Uh, maybe the person that's in therapy will communicate the problem a little more clearly to the other person. Um, and I, I've seen change happen when one person's in therapy and the other is not. Of course, it depends on the level of resistance that the one who is not in therapy has, obviously, um, because it is it is possible for 
uh, person in therapy to become aware of a problem that's not being worked on. And then a series of, you know, difficult conversations start happening. They're, they're therapeutic, they're positive. They're, you know, oftentimes problems are not being talked about, but in an instance like this, they begin to be talked about. Uh, the person in therapy kind of makes it happen, uh, communicates, the other person may or may not like that. And then you enter the possibility of, uh, you know, the, the resistant partner realizing that it's important as a consequence of the conversations to, to you know, uh, consent to a uh, to a couple's treatment. And, and that can happen too. You know, these are all variable situations that can happen too. Um, unfortunately, there are situations where the person in therapy realizes nothing's going to change in the relationship because my partner's too resistant to making changes and it's unhealthy what we're doing now and I have to leave. And sometimes what happens, I've discovered in uh, couples with couples I've worked with and individuals I've worked with is on the way out the door, the other person says, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, I I, I, I don't want to lose you. Uh, what do we have to do to keep this going? And, uh, you know, couples therapy comes up again, and then there's more agreement to begin couples therapy. Of course, there's reservations on the part of the person that didn't want to do it. But, you know, if the couples therapy is successful, it oftentimes increases motivation, even in the resistant partner. And then you got a you got a good working situation going on in that particular couples treatment. But I have to add that it's also possible for one person to be in therapy, realize that it's not going to work and they leave and the other partner doesn't change doesn't enter couples treatment, doesn't change, sees the problem as uh, the other person's and, and the relationship ends. And in some instances, <clears throat> I think that's therapeutic. And I, I mean, I'm not in favor of relationships breaking up. I don't, you know, go into a couples therapy situation or even with an individual with that in mind. But you know, there are toxic relationships that are possible. And if that is the case, then, you know, it's therapeutic for the relationship to break up and uh, people to go their separate ways. Um, the person who's in therapy, who becomes aware of what patterns are not healthy and what they need to change for the next relationship has a better chance of improving their love life going forward. And the person that does not take seriously the idea of uh, making change in their love life and just tries to keep things status quo, uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, that person may replicate the very problem in the next relationship. Mm -hmm. I think it's also, you talk about it in the book about taking full responsibility for your own life. Like, you know, there's, uh -huh. you're there and every, everything that shows up, you know, you're, you're the, the pattern that's there, you know, I'm here, uh -huh. you know, Absolutely. whatever. And that, that, that could be scary for people, but they only realize if you take full responsibility for your life, you're really empowering yourself. Absolutely. And stepping Absolutely. into that space. Yeah. What and and the psychological love life, that idea in and of itself can be a little, you know, a little daunting, a little difficult for people because 
now I'm suggesting, you know, your love life's not improved by, you know, necessarily going to better places to meet people or wearing better clothing or, you know, coming up with better uh, lines to use when you meet somebody. Uh, I'm talking about looking inside oneself to make real changes in your love life. And, and that can be a little bit, you know, a little bit uncomfortable at first until people really realize that, you know, look, if I change something in myself, that changes everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's one story that really, real life story that just sticks in your mind where you saw the greatest transformation that you saw with one of your clients? Uh, Does one jump out for you? Yeah, my own love life. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh, that's, I, I that's... use I use myself as a case study in the book, you know, chapter five. I I even have a picture of mom and dad and myself yes. when I was a year and a half. Yes, I, mean, I, I, I agonized over getting, okay, let me see if I can get permission to use different case studies, blah, blah, blah. And then I realized that I'm not going to do that. I'm going to use my own love life experience because I made the change. So yes. I'm, I'm going to do it. And I, I grew up in a family where, you know, first generation immigrants uh, from the Azores Islands. My my grandmother lost several male children, uh, uh, miscarriages, stillbirth. And my mother was the only child that lived. So, you know, my grandparents lived upstairs in the house that we owned. And uh, my mother, father and my three brothers uh, lived downstairs and my grandparents like put a locking key on a lock and chain a lock and chain on my mother like you know like, she wasn't going to like separate <laughs> like they were going to hang on to their child mm-hmm. and it, it really created an unhappiness in my mother she really never had a chance to have her own independent life and I was the child out of four that was her a consulary, you know, I'd be sitting at the dinner table, you know, when no one was home, listening to my mother's un- unhappiness and so on. And she believes, by the way, that that's why I became a psychologist. <laughs> my, my mother used to say that to me. You know, that was a kind of like a, a tongue-in-cheek kind of joke. She did. <laughs> I'm responsible for why you became a psychologist. But there's some truth in it, I'm sure. But the problem was that you know, I, what I learned from my mother was that unconsciously, I want to make sure that word gets put in there, unconsciously learned from my mother that women were uh, dependent, controlling, and self-centered. And that, uh, unfortunately, was what my mother struggled with in her character, and her personality. And uh, when I uh, turned 17 and started having love relationships, I found dependent, controlling, self-centered women. And here's the scary part. Even when I found someone who wasn't, mm-hmm. I related to them as though they were. Mm-hmm. So that's how prominent, how dominant this pattern was in its control of my love life. And I've had, you know, as I detail in the book, you know, detailed uh, in the book, uh, disappointing relationships over and over and over and over again until i became aware of that template my analyst you know now i'm i'm in my mid-30s my analyst says you know i think you're using your mother's template Mm -hmm. in your love life and that was a shock to me like what are you talking about okay so 
I took a break from dating for a while. And uh, interestingly enough, I never had any sisters, but I became very close friends with, uh, with several women. One in particular, my best friend for a number of years, maybe about five total. And, uh, and I learned quite a bit about female psychology, so to speak. It was like an internship, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I never, I never had a sister. My mother and my grandmother were the prototypes that existed in my family for the type of woman that uh, I should find and marry. Uh, so I didn't have any any broader experience to compare, and so I learned that women could be independent. Women could be not controlling and women could be intimate instead of self-centered. And so interesting that, you know, I as that process went on, those five years where I was palling around with this person and I I learned these things. And we were dating, but the dating was never serious. It was kind of a time I was taking a break from my love life in a way, you know, and just working on myself in a sense. And I and then when that was over. Uh, so interesting. My wife popped up in mm-hmm. my, you know, she called me up. She was somebody that I knew from a clinic that I worked in uh, years before, six years. I knew my wife for about six years. No, didn't have regular contact with her, but I, I knew her. And she she came back into my life. And it's strange how it occurred at that time, you know. And, and we lived together for a while, and then we got married. And, uh, and it... Uh, and she's an independent, not controlling, not self-centered person. Mm-hmm. So I realized that there was, you know, a process here that can affect one's love life, and it be it, 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 where your your love life goes from being unconsciously driven to consciously managed, where you, you become aware of who's ready for a relationship and who isn't. Things like that occur and what you don't want to repeat. And I went through that process. And that was one of the major reasons I mentioned earlier why I wrote the book, because I wanted to really invite people. I think talking about my own love life was a way to, you know, make it a little easier for people to to look and say, okay, this guy, he had an experience. He's writing about it. It's not just all book learning or, you know, learning from, from patients necessarily. It's something he personally experienced. Mm-hmm. I I sort of relate to what you're saying because in in my case um, with Cliff is Cliff and myself we had dated and being I was engaged before and all the rest of it didn't go through but I came to a point when I reached thirty that I thought mm, I'm not going to look anymore if it's supposed to happen it happens if I'm supposed to have children it happens mm-hmm. I was even I was even looking to be up like in the bushes, like living with a hot, good wine, good music, good food, no doors. Like I, I literally had stopped, stopped looking because I thought, well, maybe that's not my path. And then as soon as I stopped looking, Cliff showed up. <laughs> interesting. So it is interesting. interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and, if, you know, I had just came back to Canada. I was in Europe at the time and made the decision to come back to do an NLP course. And he was in the course and, Literally, I was not looking. I just thought, and then boom, there he is. <laughs> yeah, and so I think when people stop looking, like you're talking about, something important's happening in their psychology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it might be one thing that ran through my mind as you were telling me this is I I thought maybe the act of not looking was uh, 
an act of acceptance of you. Like I'm going to, I'm going to do me Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. a while. I'm going to be me, do me. And I think that's a very powerful statement about a person's individuality. And it's, it's kind of important. You know, sometimes when we're looking, there's a sense of desperation. Mm -hmm, There's a sense mm -hmm. of like, Oh, crap. The the, the clock is ticking. Oh, I can hear a clock tick, tick, tick. I have to find somebody. And it's not really the best condition (laughs) to find someone at all. You scare people off that way, or you get, equally desperate people to respond so when when you when you say no more i'm not going to be desperate if it shows up it shows up let me you know give it to god so to speak give it to the universe if it happens it happens there's something about that that allows a person okay let me go from desperation to being me to being my true self to being me and it's so interesting you you described him as your your you said what my true love my oh, yeah. true love, my soulmate, <laughs> my true soulmate. Yes. Uh, well, you know, true soulmate matches true self. <laughs> you know, yes. those, those are like, those are on the same line and the same continuum. So that's what I think happens. That would be my opinion. <laughs> I also tell people that, you know, I, I love Cliff more today than the day I married him. And that's that's going through the marriage, the up and down, the valleys, the that's rivers. That's cool. That's cool. I love that. That's yeah. great. Yeah, that's and, that's that's a maturing love. Oh, for sure. And even when we're uh-huh. apart or in a store, let's say he's somewhere over getting something and I'm there, just looking at him lights me up. So uh-huh. <laughs> he's so, a lucky man. He's a lucky man. We're, we're, we're both we're both very lucky. <laughs> Thomas, what's your vision for the next 10 years? Like, where, where do you see your work going and the impact and uh-huh. you know, you want to leave the legacy of your work? What, what do you see in 10 years? Yeah, well, um, since I've written the book, you are my, I think, 47th podcast. I'm a, I'm on podcast interviews around the world. I I, I want to talk about this because I, mm. I really feel like people need to become aware of how to work on their love lives and reverse this divorce rate, perhaps, mm-hmm, you, know? Mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so a book was the beginning. A website was part of the beginning. But uh, I've been I've been crafting a uh, PowerPoint presentation, and I'm interested in getting in front of audiences, either virtual or um, or live. And because I, I I I'm going I'm exploring the use of imagery to really make a point to invite people's emotional responses, the type of emotional responses that help us learn that 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 make us focus and and i i found some very interesting images that help do that i've been crafting this powerpoint for a number of years now and and so i'm looking this fall and into the spring to really begin doing that so um that's that's uh that's one idea that i'm very excited about um the idea of having an audience really feeling the message and doing a bit of a Q&A at the end of that presentation and, and having a dialogue with, with individuals in the audience, really, it just turns me on, if you don't oh, mean. No, that's wonderful. You're, it's, your, it's your passion and your life's oh, purpose. Oh, big time. I love it. I love it. And 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 my wife, my wife, I mean, I, and I offer love life consultations too. We're doing telehealth stuff online with people who, who uh, who have uh, an interest in this message, an interest in the unlearning method, who become aware that they're struggling with a disappointing love life and need a little support, a little little guidance 
through the process of making a change. So we offer we offer uh, um, telephone work that uh, that's really you know come into vogue now as uh, as the pandemic begins to wane. You know, just it's convenient for people. It's an easy way to to talk with people about what's going on in their work on their own love life. So we're doing some of that um, as well. It's wonderful. Thank you. Thomas, I ask each of one of my guests to share a unique gift that you've created for them today. Please share, you know, what that is. And I want everyone to know all the links to Dr. Thomas Jordan and the gift will be below in the show notes. And when you say uniqueness, a uniqueness, you're talking about, I'm sorry, I I want to understand how you mean. Well, unique unique for me is that you you've thought it up for the people who are listening and who are spending the time to listen to our heartfelt conversation today. And I know it's a, it's a time sensitive gift that you're giving, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, Yes. 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 Yeah. I'm i I'm offering a free copy of my book, a printed copy of my book uh, and or digital, whichever is preferred. And, uh, And for the first 10 people that respond, uh, to my email address, uh, Jordan at gmail.com. They can just send me a note that they're interested in the book, uh, digital or print, and I will send them a copy. Oh, thank uh, you. That, that's a very generous gift. And uh, yeah, I think you're going to be getting some emails from people. <laughs> so <laughs> Good, it's good. <laughs> and and we're uh, the book's available on Amazon.com for anyone interested in it. Um, and my website is uh, the lovelifelearningcenter.com. Great. We'll have all those links below in the show notes. I do a transcription for each podcast, so they'll have that there also. Okay. Thomas, thank you so much for sharing from your heart and soul, your wisdom on healing your disappointing love life. Namaste. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Moira. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Heart Soul Wisdom Podcast with Moira Sutton. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please join our community at moirasutton.com and continue the discussion on our Facebook page, Create the Life You Love. You will be part of a global movement connecting with other heart-centered people who are consciously creating the life they love on their own terms. Together, we can raise our consciousness for the greater good of humanity and for our planet.